All right, well, good morning, church. My name is Doug, I'm the pastor here. I want to welcome you to Parkview East. It's a joy to be able to worship with you on this uh, exceptionally hot Memorial Day weekend. So, um, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them up to the book of Ruth. As a church, we have been walking through this beautiful book in the Old Testament. It's a small one, tucked back in the Old Testament, but it is deep and it is rich. It is a beautiful, beautiful story. Um, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Craig's got some. He'll come around and put one in your lap, in your hands. One over here. I'll also just remind you, if you are new or if you've just started worshiping here at Parkview East in the last couple of months or weeks or whatever, um, in the summer, you will notice that when it gets hot and we have to try and cool this room down, um, we don't have uh, air equally distributed throughout the room, okay? So I'll just caution you that if you did not bring a blanket and you're sitting in this section right here, you will get cold. And at any point throughout the service, you want to relocate to one of the more warmer seats, you are more than welcome to do so. Uh, but that area is going to get blasted, just a direct assault from the air conditioner all throughout the service. So maybe, maybe that's what you want. That's fine as well. So um, as a reminder, we're in chapter Ruth. I'm going to just kind of go, or chapter three of Ruth. I'm going to go through just real quick and summarize kind of where we have, what we have seen so far. This is an awesome, awesome story. Um, we have seen these different characters emerge from one week after the other. Essentially what happened at the beginning of the story was that Elimelech was in the town of Bethlehem. And this was during the period of the judges, a period where it's characterized that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so it was completely lawless. Lawlessness was just all over the place, right? It was a time of chaos. It was a time of, of instability throughout Israel's kingdom. And well, before the kingdom was in place. So about a 400-year period here, but between the conquest and the settlement of the promised land and when David had went to the throne was this period of the judges, all right? And in the middle of this period, this chaotic period within Israel's history, um, there was a famine in the land. And a man by the name of Elimelech it was living in the town of Bethlehem, the house of bread, and in search for food, he uprooted his family and traveled to the distant land of Moab. While they were in Moab, things didn't go quite as planned. Elimelech himself died. His two sons, Malon and Kilian, they also died and were left in the middle of chapter 1 with simply his widow, Naomi, and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Well, Naomi hears word that the house of bread Bethlehem, that famine is no longer there, that, that food has returned, and so she decides it's in her best interest to make her way back home. Orpah and Naomi begin to journey back home with her, and on the road she says, listen girls, this is not good for you. Let me go along. You return. Stay here. Stay with your family. Stay in your culture. Stay in your country. And Orpah says, all right, fine, you convinced me. She turns back, but Naomi, or Ruth clings to Naomi. Says, where you go, I will go. Who you worship, your God will become my God. Where you die, I will die. It's this beautiful picture of love and faithfulness that we see Ruth demonstrate to Naomi. So they go back in chapter 1, back into the town of Bethlehem. The, the town is all stirred up because Naomi has returned, but her, her husband is not there. Her sons are not with her. She is just herself and this Moabite woman. And at the end of chapter 1, Naomi describes herself as a bitter, bitter woman. A woman who has lived a long and difficult life, one blow after another, and as a result, she is left bitter. 
Chapter 2 comes up and, and Ruth is there with her mother-in-law. And Ruth says, you know what, I'm going to go out into the fields and I'm going to glean. We saw this last week. So this was a practice in the Old Testament built into God's economy where God would care for orphans, for widows, for the foreigner by this system of gleaning. She would go into a field of some other person and who knows what could happen when she ventures into this field. She could be taken advantage of. Maybe the owner of the field won't let her glean food there. Who knows what could happen? But it just so happens that she comes into the field of Boaz who is related to Elimelech. And Boaz discovers this woman gleaning in his field, and he instantly notices her. And there's this beautiful dialogue that takes place. He says, go ahead and glean. If you remember, there's a, a first date that happens in the middle of this working day where, where he feeds her roasted grain. I mean, this is an amazing date, right? Feeds her roasted grain. He sends her an abundance back to her mother-in-law and says, return during the harvest. You can continue to glean here. I will provide for you. I will protect you. Stay in my field. Don't go anywhere else. You're safe here. This is your field. So she takes that news back to Naomi. Naomi is blown away because she recognizes this man Boaz could be the, the essential way that God provides for them, not just by food, but also by family. There's this amazing hope that we're left with at the end of chapter 2 that maybe Boaz will be the man who will step up to the plate. And it ends with the most amazing verse in chapter 2. I mean, maybe... That was sarcasm, the most anticlimactic verse at the end of chapter 2. And she lived with her mother-in-law, all right? Not the promise of a lot of good times to come, maybe. I mean, like, wow, this, she's really making it. She's living with her mother-in-law, right? And that's the way chapter 2 closes. And so in chapter 3, as we walk through it this morning, I'm just going to, we're going to just read it kind of verse chunk by chunk and, and kind of explain it and pull some things out one verse after the other. So let me go ahead and pray for our time, and then we will we'll dive into chapter 3. Lord, we come together this morning around your word, and we are reminded that this is your word, that your word is holy, that it is true. Our prayer now is that you would write it, these eternal truths, on our heart, Father. Pray this morning that we would be able to see Jesus even in this word. This text would help us to see the Son, that by your Spirit's power, Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see his glory. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Just ask you real quick, have you ever really been in need of rest? Have you ever been in need of rest? Maybe some of you are sitting here this morning nodding your heads like right now, and I started to see your heads kind of like you need rest, all right? You don't need to be in church. You need to be at home sleeping, right? Have you ever been in need of rest? Um, shortly after my wife and I got married, her mother-in-law lived with us for a period of time. And she does that periodically. She's from Belize, and so she will travel here, and she'll stay with us for a couple months. In fact, she just left. And um, one of the first times we drove to my family, it was about an hour and a half away in Dubuque, she rode with us there um, shortly after we got married. And, and, and we're driving back, and it's late at night, and, and I can see kind of her in the back, and everybody else in the car is asleep. And I'm starting to get really dozy. And I don't know about you, but when, you, when I'm tired, especially when I'm on the road, like I have to just kind of like slap my face, kind of like do some stuff like this. Like I just kind of start to shake a little bit, just whatever I can do. Like I can feel myself nodding off. And it looks kind of ridiculous if you were to see it, right? And everybody else in the car is asleep. And so I'm thinking like, just do what you got to do. Stay awake. Ah, you know. And I, I glance up into the mirror and I see Joyce, my mother-in-law, like this. <laughs> like holding on to her purse. Like, she is not going to sleep, all right? She is making sure 
that I stay awake, right? And at that time, I saw her, and I kind of felt a little embarrassed. I'm like, okay, let me just pull over for a second, get a, just a few minutes of rest, run around the car, you know, whatever, do what I got to do, get back in and drive. Like, I was in desperate need of sleep. I was in desperate need of rest. And, and maybe you can relate, right? Physical rest. This chapter really begins with the desire that Naomi has for her daughter-in-law, Ruth, to have just that rest. That, that Ruth would have rest. But this is not physical rest. This is not the, I had a long day's work and I need to, to get some sleep. My body hurts. This is a different type of rest. The rest that Naomi is after for her daughter-in-law, Ruth, is a very different type of rest. It's not a physical rest. The rest that she wants Ruth to know is a rest that is deeper than physical rest. It is a spiritual rest, a, a longing that she has in her life for maybe comfort and provision, maybe meaning and security. It is a deep, deep rest that Naomi wants her daughter-in-law to discover. Remember, both of these women have been knocked down blow after blow by what life has dealt to them. And Naomi, as a result, has become kind of bitter. She's hopeful, but she's bitter because of the obstacles she has endured through her life. And she knows her daughter-in-law has felt the same thing in her heart. In her heart, what she wants for Ruth is rest, deep, deep rest. And as the story starts off in chapter 3, that's exactly what we see her prayer is. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? This is what she wants for Ruth. She wants Ruth to be granted rest. If we were to read all the way through at the end of the chapter, what we will see is one of the last verses talks about the promise of rest is to come. And so from the beginning of the chapter to the end of the chapter, the bookends are that of this idea of rest. And what we discover in, the, in between those verses, what we'll see this morning is that apart from the love, the deep, great, awesome love of God, we will be a people that will continue to search for rest. That there is no rest apart from the deep love of God. The rest that she seeks for Ruth can be summarized. She wants her to have food. We've already seen that that need was met last week, an abundance. But she's yet to meet this need of family that Ruth has. So she prays that she will discover this. She prays that she will discover this rest. We are all on a journey. And oftentimes as we search for rest, what you will notice, what we talked about the first week, is that that journey can be filled with one obstacle after another. Now, sometimes those obstacles, those rocks that we kind of come on, those bumps in the road, they can be the result of maybe just happenings in life or maybe other people have placed them there. But there are some times when those obstacles that we, we endure in life, they can be the result of our own doing. A great example in Scripture is that of Simon Peter, right? If Simon Peter had his way, Jesus would not have gone to the cross. He would have no cross to carry. Ruth's quest for rest, we see one obstacle after another. And one of the first interesting obstacles that we'll even see in this passage is the very plotting of her mother-in-law, Naomi, in verse 2. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? 
See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So in the time that she discovered that Ruth had been in Boaz's field till towards the end of the harvest time, Naomi had began to plot. The mother-in-law had began to scheme some way that she could orchestrate events so that her daughter-in-law will find rest. This is a strategy, and I want to make two quick observations about her strategy. The first observation about her strategy is that her strategy ultimately is rooted in hope. See, Naomi knows the character of God, and as she hears that Ruth returned from the field of the man, Boaz, this kinsman of Elimelech, her mind goes to work and bursts this strategy. Now, the picture we've had so far of Naomi is one who understands God's providence, understands God's sovereignty, that even in their ordinary lives, that God is behind the scenes, he is at work, he is making all of these things happen, he is allowing these things to happen. But she has been bitter. She has called, she even changed her name. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. Right? And so you may think that this woman is simply dealing with depression. She is completely knocked down by the blows of life. And she can't even, even respond to the faithfulness of God. But instead, the picture we see here in chapter 3 is that actually she is a woman who is hopeful. She is hopeful. And we know this because she strategizes. She puts together a plan. She, she plots. See, people who have hope don't just sit idle. They strategize. They plan, right? She is a woman who is hopeful. She sees the solution on the horizon, and Naomi's response is she gets to work. She's a woman who is hopeful. Now, when I just step back real quick and think as a church, the same is true for churches. Churches who are hopeful are churches who strategize. Churches who have a hope that maybe this good news of God's gospel and, and the God that we worship, that we gather together and worship weekly, that we try to obey daily, that, that this God needs to be displayed for our community. And they think strategically about how to do that. And that's really what has brought us to the 2020 vision, right? As the elders, the leadership of the church has come together thinking, how can we take the good news of the hope of Jesus and put it on display for our community? That's what this 2020 vision is all about. What is the best strategy? Maybe one church in three locations that can kind of contextualize to some degree how they worship together put that on display, that would be the best way that we can reach this community. The 2020 vision is our strategy because we are a hopeful church. Naomi's strategy was rooted in hope. Now, the other thing, this may go without saying, is if you are a mother-in-law or a mother or a father, you might look at her advice and you might say to yourself, this is not great counsel, all right? This is not great counsel. Counsel. This would, honestly, when you read what she's suggesting that Ruth does, you may think this is no good advice whatsoever. 
I want you to sneak down late at night, right? There's this man that's there, he, the owner of the field. Don't let anybody see you hide. Watch him when he drinks his full, when he's tired, and when he lays down. I want you to creep up and don't let anybody see you. Creep up next to him, uncover his feet, lie next to him in the middle of the night. This, to be clear, in case you haven't picked it up, is an unseemly situation, all right? What's going on here is not the advice like I would give my 20-year-old son, all right? I would not say sneak into this woman's place of habitat late at night, right? This is the type of stuff that gets you locked up, you know what I'm saying? This is not good advice, right? It's not good. Just to be clear, there's a lot going on here with the language. Let me just unpack a few terms for you real quick. She tells her to uncover his feet. This, this word uncover, his feet, uncover, is used throughout the Old Testament, and it specifically refers to uncovering nakedness, to revealing nakedness, or exposing one specifically for sexual relations. This word is specifically referred to in those types of situations throughout the Old Testament. And then the idea of uncovering, what does he uncover? Oh, just his feet. Like when you first read this, you may think, okay, long days, work, like lay down, and the first thing you do is kind of kick off your shoes, take off your socks. Maybe that's what's going on here. Just give him a little break, air out his dogs, you know what I mean? They're barking a little too much, just take off the socks, you know what I'm saying? That may be what you think, but this idea, this feet is actually uncovering his feet is a euphemism that's used throughout the Old Testament again, even for a thing such as relieving oneself. If you're familiar with the passage where Saul is pursuing David, the Bible says that in 1 Samuel 24, 3, that Saul snuck into a cave and he went in there to relieve himself. It's the exact same turn. You could all, literally translates, he went in there to uncover his feet. Okay, so it's, it's a euphemism that's used for specifically uncovering a particular part of your body, if you know what I'm talking about. And then the next phrase that's interesting is, is lie down. Again, another word that is used throughout the Old Testament that's specifically referring to sexual relations. So these, the use of these three terms, uncover, feet, lie down, in the context of a midnight meeting with a man and a woman is completely charged with sexual innuendo. That's what she's suggesting that Ruth does, okay? What if this goes wrong? What if it goes wrong? It could go wrong in a variety of ways. Remember, it's late at night. Like, there's probably not a lot of lights around. What if, what if Ruth creeps next to the wrong man, okay? It's a possibility uncovers the wrong feet, if you know what I'm talking about. That could not be good. Boaz, in response to what she does, he could completely, this is a bold move. You're expecting a response. Boaz could reject her. Worse yet, he could assault her. This could go bad. No one is watching. Perhaps, you know, she's trying to do it to make sure nobody sees. Perhaps somebody sees what happens and instantly reputations get tarnished and ruined. Mo Boaz is a worthy man, a man of great character and esteem throughout the community. This could totally jeopardize his reputation as well as Ruth's reputation. And Naomi says, 
He will tell you what to do. You are completely, be completely subject to whatever, whatever Boaz says. This is not the best situation. This is not good counsel. We'll see in verses 6, six, six through 16 that Boaz delivers. So verse 6, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Ruth, in predictable fashion, does exactly as her mother-in-law commands. She makes her way in the middle of the night to the threshing floor, tucked outside of the city, hides away, careful not to be seen. And as soon as Boaz enters, I can imagine her eyes just fix on Boaz. Again, she doesn't want to uncover the wrong man's feet, right? She fixes her eyes on Boaz. Darkness begins to set in. She approaches him as he falls asleep and does exactly as Naomi instructs with one little audible. As Boaz wakes, feels the cool breeze, perhaps, startled by the cool breeze he feels on his feet, startles him, rolls over, and there he sees Ruth. Who are you? Boaz knows who's at his feet. He knows who's lying next to him. Who are you? I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Naomi doesn't tell her to say anything. This is Ruth's audible. She totally inserts this herself. And this little phrase is so important. Not simply is Ruth some pawn in Naomi's game. She is loyal. She is faithful. But she also thinks for herself. There's another place in the Old Testament where this phrase spreading wings occurs in relation to lovers. And it's found in Ezekiel 16.8. God is talking and he is describing Israel as a young maiden that he took for his wife. This is the phrase that is used to describe the loving relationship between God's people and God himself. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. If Ruth's request is anything like the one we read in Ezekiel, it goes way beyond simply a request for sexual relations. Ruth is making her intentions to Boaz very, very clear. Boaz, will you pledge yourself to me in covenant-keeping, faithful marriage? Will you, Boaz, become my man? You have provided for me food, the thing I came to Bethlehem because I needed. Now, Boaz, will you also provide for me in the terms of family? Will you, Boaz, be my man? That's what she is saying here. But this is also, this phrase should sound familiar, right? 
Not because maybe your daily bread pulled up Ezekiel chapter 16 this week, but it should sound familiar because we just heard it similarly last week in chapter 2. This is the prayer of blessing that Boaz prays that blesses uh, Ruth when he, they meet in the field. The Lord repay you for what you have done. He knows what Ruth has done, how she has been faithful and shown kindness and cared for her mother-in-law, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth isn't the only one who's being direct. Boaz is doing the exact same thing. He recognizes that Ruth came to Israel to seek refuge under the wings of God. And now Ruth is saying, I don't just want to seek refuge under the wings of God. I want you to put your wings over me as well. Boaz, will you be my man? As Boaz discovers Ruth, he is, think back to when he discovered her in the field. He is immediately taken back by how awesome she is. We don't know much about her physical beauty. If she is an attractive woman, we do know she's younger. Some people think that she's probably 25, and at this time, Boaz is probably closer to the age of 50. We know that that Boaz has heard about her, this Moabite woman who's come back, cared for this mother-in-law, Naomi, who's bitter, hungry, who's alone, that Ruth hasn't abandoned her. He sees her work ethic in the field, sees her operating within the law of God's Old Testament provisions for for how people are to care for the poor and the orphan and the widow. He sees her character. And it's interesting, this draws him to her. Now, in in the Old Testament, sorry, in the Hebrew canon, the book of Ruth is placed in a different place than in our English Bible, in our canon today. In the Hebrew canon, Ruth comes immediately after the book of Proverbs. And if those of you who are here this morning are familiar with the book of Proverbs, you know that the very last chapter in Proverbs, chapter 31, leaves the last words of that book, gives a picture of what a godly woman looks like. What does a godly woman look like? It paints verse after verse after verse about the noble character, the work ethic, how she builds up her man's reputation. This awesome woman. This is what a godly woman looks like. And then immediately after Proverbs comes to a close, we get the book of Ruth. Now I bet Boaz is in the field and what he sees working in his field is a Proverbs 31 woman. In many ways, the book of Ruth shows you exactly what, the, what Proverbs 31 wants to see. It's a picture, a living portrait of what a godly woman looks like. Now, most people, when they preach this book, that's the first thing that they used to put out there. But I, I hesitated to do that, honestly, because there are so many lessons within Ruth herself that are good for men and for women. She is a, she is a noble character that is worthy to be followed by, imitated by either a man or a woman, not just a picture of biblical womanhood. Like men have a great deal to learn from the way she's cared for her mother-in-law, the way she has demonstrated loving kindness, the way she loves God, obeys God. We all have a great deal to learn from her. She is a woman who fears the Lord. Story goes on in verse 10, and he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter, You have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. This is a woman of reputation. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. 
Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it in her. Then she went into the city. In the same way that Ruth gives us a picture of what a godly woman looks like, we see that Boaz does the exact same thing. What does a godly man look like? It looks like a man who has complete poise, right? He remains under control the entire time. The awkwardness of the situation that Boaz finds himself, he doesn't operate irrationally. He doesn't operate just based on his emotions. He has control over his emotions. He operates with poise. We also see that he operates with purity. He, he, he has a priority to maintain not just his purity, but also Ruth's purity. Remember, Naomi said, do whatever he says. This may have been his opportunity to take advantage of Ruth. But he keeps the relationship pure checks his emotions, maintains his purity, and protects Ruth at the same time. And he's also a man of integrity. He recognizes that he's not the closest redeemer, that there is somebody else who is within the clan closer to Elimelech than Boaz himself is. And he first has to operate under the, the, the Old Testament law. So he's obedient to God's law. He keeps God's law. He could have e easily stepped outside of it. But he's a man who conducts himself based on integrity. He does things the right way. Then in verse 16, and she came to her mother-in-law. She said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. This is an awesome, awesome picture. If you remember in chapter 1, Naomi saw herself, and the way she summed up her life is she is somebody who went away full, but she came back empty. And now, as Boaz sends Ruth on her way, he sends her a message to her mother-in-law. And that message is, Naomi, you are not empty. God has not forgotten about you. God cares for you. You are hurting, yes, but you are not empty. God has not abandoned you. You are not empty. Sinners is a great reminder for us in the times in our life when we are hurting, maybe find ourselves bitter, maybe there's things that have happened to us, we are not empty. God is with us. He does not leave or forsake his people. Ruth has gone out empty, and she returned now full to Naomi. And Naomi replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the last time that we hear from Ruth and Naomi in the book. They will not speak again throughout chapter 4. Boaz then will take center stage. All the plotting and the scheming has really come to an end at this point. Even the quest, the search for rest, is now out of their hands and completely in the hands of Boaz. The, the book of Ruth gives us a wonderful, wonderful picture of the love that God looks, what he looks like when he breaks into the ordinary lives of his people. Now, there's a word that we have read several times from one chapter, finds itself in every chapter, and it's this word for, that describes God's love. It's the word 
Pesed. Just as we close, I want to give you a couple of just observations about God's love. Now, this won't be anything new for, for any of you who have been around church for a while, who maybe are familiar with God's word. There's nothing real earth-shattering here, right? But it, this book, what it does is it gives us a picture of how God loves us, how God loves you. And the word that we hear over and over again in this book is the word Hesed. Has said, and it's 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 more. This book is more than just a, a a picture of a marriage between a rejected alien and a respected Jew. It's a picture of Christ's love for me and His love for you. And, and the first thing that we learn really from this word has said, which is a word that we really don't have in. In English, doesn't really have a word that does it justice. It has to do with God's faithfulness, his mercy, his love, his kindness. Probably the, the closest thing we can come up with is loving kindness. And that's the way a lot of times it's translated. But the first thing that we learn about God's love is that his love, God's love, real love, involves risks. It involves risk. Consider, again, all the things that could have gone wrong as Ruth stepped out in faith, trusting her mother-in-law, following her directions. Consider how Naomi risked. She sent her out into the harvest. Who knows what kind of field Ruth would have found? These people were risking. Every day was one risk after another. Boaz himself risked, even in this night in chapter 3. He risked his reputation. He put it on the line. He could have ignored maybe the closer redeemer and just pursued her in marriage himself, but he does things the right way. He's taking a risk. What if that redeemer said, yes, I will marry Ruth? He's taking a risk. The most precious things in life come with a price. They cost you something. His said love causes you to do the things that are risky, to leave yourself open and vulnerable the greatest demonstration of this said of this risk-taking love is the fact that Jesus himself came to earth to die for us. He, he hung on the cross for you and for me. Risk is involved with love. If you think about Hebrews chapter, chapter 11, this awesome passage that talks about the, the men and women of faith that have gone before us, and it's, you see that they have faith, but their faith, their loving devotion towards God demands that they take action. Right? Cain himself offered. Abraham went out. Noah constructed. Moses stood up to Pharaoh, led God's people out. It takes action. Love requires us to take risks. Next thing that we learn about his love is that his love is above reproach. This picture that we are given of love here in Ruth 3 couldn't be more countercultural, right? If, if this scene were displayed in any of our contemporary movies, we know exactly how the scene would go. This runs completely countercultural. Boaz's response to Ruth, the, what she's asking of him, goes completely against the norms that we have for saying this is what a relationship between a man and a woman should look like. This challenges that. It's above reproach. We also learn that, that God's love offers redemption. Right? Naomi came up with really a messy plan. This was not a good plan. Potentially disastrous situation, and God, in spite of that, uses it for good. He redeems her terrible plot, right? He keeps the characters pure throughout it. 
Now this, if you are familiar with the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 19, this situation sounds a lot like what happened, how the whole country of Moab got started with Lot and his daughters. And if you were to read back through that passage, you would see one parallel after another. In many ways, God is not just redeeming Naomi and Ruth through this. He's redeeming an entire people, right? Moab's, they were, they were, Israel was charged to stay away from anybody from Moab because of how they came, how they didn't show hospitality to them. And in this passage, God is redeeming a people. His love is redeeming. It's a wonderful reminder that regardless of where you come from this morning, regardless of what lies in your past, the mistakes that you have made, the mistakes that have been made to you, God redeems those things. He is a loving God, and in his love, he pursues us, and he uses us. There's nobody in here who has been so hurt, so damaged that they are beyond use by God himself. If you think about your own life, your hurt, your history, God can use you. He can use you. He can save you, and he can use you. There is nobody that is beyond God's repair. I was talking to a friend just yesterday who had a van, started to break down, took it to the mechanic. The mechanic said, you know what? It's a wrap right? You got a couple miles. Don't drive it too much longer. This thing is done. God does not do that with us, right? He doesn't look at your track record. He doesn't look at your plotting and your scheming. He doesn't look at your pain. He doesn't look at your history and say, you're beyond repair. This one's done. It's a wrap. It's over. In fact, oftentimes, it's those moments, those people that have a lot of stuff in their, in their history, a lot of baggage that God uses in the most glorifying way. It's a picture of how redeeming, redemptive his love is. Nobody is beyond his repair. And the last thing that we learn about his love is that his love, it is in his love that we find true, genuine rest. All of these things came about because of Ruth's need for rest. Her need to long no more, to be satisfied. And the quest for rest is one that we can probably all share and identify with. And quite honestly, itself is exhausting. Looking for rest in all the wrong places. And this morning, I simply ask, are you tired? Are you tired? Wendell Berry has a great quote in his, um, his essay on healing. Wendell Berry is an author. He writes a lot about nature, loves nature, and and this is what he says. He's, and having returned from the woods, we remember with regret its restfulness. For all creatures there are in place. Hence, they are at rest. And their most strenuous striving, sleeping and waking, dead and living, they are at rest. In the circle of the human, we are weary with striving. And we are without rest. He's identifying a, a very real need that we have as humans to find rest. And, and within the natural order of how God designed this world, he offers and extends to each and every one of us rest. When Jesus comes, this is the invitation he invites all of us to. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the invitation just even before us this morning, apart from the, the redeeming love of God, you will not find true rest. 
It's an offer he extends to us in Hebrews 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. This is the hope of, of Jesus, that in him and in him alone, you can find rest, not physical rest, but real, deep, spiritual rest in Jesus alone. Let's pray. Father God, thank you this morning just for the reminder um, of just your provision, not just for, for Ruth, um, where food and family are concerned, Lord, but also your provision to meet real deep longings of our hearts, Father. Everybody here comes from a different place this morning. We have different things in our past, Lord, and we thank you, Father, that you are a God who who doesn't look at us and maybe the mess that we bring to the table and says, no thanks, Lord, but you are a God who enters into that mess, Lord, and redeems us and saves us, Father, and offers us true, genuine rest. Lord, I pray that, that we would not seek it in other places, Lord, but we would seek it only in you and your Son. And we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.